welcome back after a brief break to Jokerman podcast about Bob Dylan in general about Bob Dylan albums Bob Dylan the artist yeah that's actually that's it about the artist Bob Dylan um we had to take a little break because I Evan I moved back to New York well I I was living here but I was temporarily in on the West Coast, and now I'm back, and now we're both on the East Coast, but we're still doing the show remotely for now, <laughs> even though we are about a mile and a half uh, distant, just because that's the way that everything has to be these days. It sure is, but hopefully before too long we'll be able to well i was gonna say we'll be back recording together in person but we never actually recorded one of these in person ever no isn't that crazy it's gonna be like a whole new thing when we have to when we record them in each other's presence the energy will be electric yeah palpable torrid (laughs) (laughs) so just keep listening if if you think it's too boring and low t uh, so far, you know, six months from now, nine months from now, when we can actually record these in <laughs> each other's presence, then it's going to be like fucking before the flood. Yeah. Hot, hot, hot. Uh, today, we have a beast of an album to discuss. Something that I didn't really know uh, was going to be as much as it is. I thought perhaps this one would be one of the easier ones. Blood on the Tracks. A classic. Everybody knows it. We both know it so well. But it turns out it's probably the most complicated of, or up there, of the most complicated and labyrinth-like albums and histories of an album that that Bob ever produced. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on here. Um, it, uh, you know, it is, it is a real three-star album that we all know and love and, and I'm sure are intimately familiar with really kind of to the same degree as the, uh, as the records we decided not to talk about at the beginning of all this, but it, um, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there, there's a lot to say about the songs themselves. There's a lot to say about the, uh, what went into the creation of the songs. There's a lot to say about the recording process of the songs, both in New York and in Minneapolis. What we have here is basically two albums. It's a tale of one album, two ways. As you might say, if you were on like a cooking competition show, you have sea urchin two ways or, you know, scallop or or another shellfish or, or any food. Blood on the Tracks is like Israel... A land of contrasts. Uh, you mean that there's one one version, one one side living in the same space that is clearly more uh, better. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. Um, I don't. I'm not. We're not Zionists, but, but anyway. Um, <laughs> there's basically a whole f- first version of this record, which was recorded in the Big Apple in New York. And then the second version, which was recorded in Minneapolis, right? Right. And yeah. um, we're going to be focusing, I think, more so on the New York version because it's obviously the more interesting to discuss. Uh, there's more mystery to it in that it's an unofficial, or for many years, 
anyway languished as a purely unofficial entity. There have been some officially released cuts here and there throughout the years since the release of the official album uh, version of Blood on the Tracks, um, the wide release that everyone knows. Um, But it was only a a couple years ago, a few years ago now, three, two? 2018, I think. 2018. That uh, the... Bootleg series, More Blood, More Tracks, very funny title, uh, came out and really just uh, unzipped the fly. Uh, and now we're just, we got it all. We're seeing the whole hog. We're seeing every inch of the, of, of the album Blood on the Tracks. Blood tracks on that. Hog. Before before we dive headfirst into Blood on the Tracks, do we? I, I feel like we we should spend just like two minutes. Uh, I know we you there, there was some some tweeting about it earlier today, but just uh, we should acknowledge <laughs> it on the show. Our our first instance of, um, of being precog like, sort of, um, future time time crime tellers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, foreseeing something terrible in the future, but in this case, we we were not. We, we did not have the capacity to stop it uh, because it, it happened. Right. We couldn't we couldn't stop it, actually. Neil Young made a song. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he made a song not th- three, four days. What? After we a week? Yeah. Like uh, the, the song was probably being being cut as we were talking about. For all we know, exactly existing. at the same time as we were uh, fantasizing or or um, divining, as he, as the case might be, the possibility of a Neil Young Trump song, um, <laughs> one sprang into existence. Um, I, I can't believe it's real. And I uh, woke up to that this morning, <laughs> and I, I listened to it like four times. It's called uh, Looking for a Leader 2020. 2020. I like I, the the 2020 there at the end really makes it for me. Um, this song is basically exactly what I thought, what we thought it would be like. Um, the part that really kills me is is the lines about Obama, where it's like, "We used to have Obama, and we could really use him now." And, yeah, and, and then there was something about like the man that stood behind him oh, needs yeah. to take over somehow or yeah, something like yeah. that. I think that about might be the Joe actual, Biden. The he actual doesn't, line. He doesn't say Joe Biden's name, but he is alluded to. Uh, yeah, very obliquely, very um, tastefully. Uh, I, I really hope that uh, now that Neil has put this song out, that the Biden campaign kind of gets in touch with him to do some sort of like cross promotional zoom kind of performance of this where Biden is like, you know, kind of stuttering and like uh, clipping in and out of the frame. And Neil Young is, uh, is serenading him with this absolutely just dog shit song. Neil Young also, he's just on a He's on a tear right now. He's actually suing Donald Trump for, uh, illegitimate use of, of Neil Young music. Um, so and that that's cool like that uh, sure, that yeah. rocks Neil is awesome also I general. feel like that's like the millionth time an artist has has done this um but you know Neil probably really means business and he's actually got the the track coming out like to boot so I I won't be surprised if Neil ends up being a 
involves somehow making more tracks like this, doing uh, doing some kind of special guest video chat, like digital fireside chat with 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 Joe Biden. It's very possible that the the spiritual successor to Neil Young's techno rock uh, concept album Trans may very well take the form of some kind of bizarre green screen appearance in front of a digital fireplace with Joseph Robinette Biden. <laughs> and that, I love that middle name. Transformer man. So yes, it's very possible that we could get the um, trans sequel, which if, if uh, Neil Young made a sequel to trans and called it trans two. Um, we would have to have a whole other discussion about his use of the word trans. That would be another, a whole, a whole new kettle of fish. It could be called trans America with, with Joe Biden. And he'd be recording it like on an iPad while he's staying on Joe Biden's, uh, bus, the no, the no Malarkey Express or whatever it's called, <laughs> something similar to like the the Merry Pranksters, um, and and the and further that the famous psychedelic bus, but instead we're going around the country, um, giving people lithium so they don't kill themselves, <laughs> dispatching with Malarkey from from coast to coast, cutting it down at the root, yeah, um, with song. I must confess, uh, just to wrap this up and get us back to to Bob World, when I saw the the text messages that you had sent me this morning, uh, that were just it, it, you just said like, "Oh my God, it actually happened!" Ha ha ha! And there was a link, and it just said, um, "Looking for a leader, 2020," and it didn't say who the artist was. And so the the oh. first split second like moment, I thought, "No, this can't possibly be a Bob song uh, about looking for a leader." Um, and, uh, and I was, I had a, I had a, a knot of fear in my stomach as I opened up the text. Uh, and fortunately, uh, what greeted my eyes was an absolute just dog shit cover. Um, <laughs> the cover is uh, very bad. Yeah. <laughs> as, as bad as rough and rowdy ways might be, this, this takes the cake. Um, Much and, worse. uh, uh, and yes, and, and yes, it turned out to be our, our old friend, Neil. Who, um, yeah. I mean, you know, another, while we're still on Neil, um, I, I recently heard for the first time this live performance of Neil doing Blown in the Wind. And I have to say, um, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, that is, it's one of the finest, if not my favorite version of that song I've ever heard. Was that is that from that uh, 30th anniversary Madison Square Garden record I, I do, with all the different I don't, covers? I don't think so. I think it's just from a Crazy Horse live record. I don't Got remember it. which one, but if you go on your favorite streaming service and you type in Neil Young blown in the wind, it's it's awesome. It starts with like this uh, barrage of war noises, like to set the scene of like uh, global conflict. And then it it's almost like Neil doing like the uh, national anthem, like the Jimi Hendrix uh, Woodstock bit but it's blown in the wind and there's this really deep distorted guitar and these awesome harmonies. It's uh, great. Neil rocks, crazy horse rocks. There's no question about it. Uh, just as long as they're not 
writing songs about the orange Cheeto and how we need Barack Obama. Hey, hey don't don't uh, knock it till the whole album comes out. Well, fortunately, we can stop talking about Neil Young's 2020 output and switch gears back to the actual topic of this show. Yeah, th- we have so much to get into. I'm honestly intimidated. Yeah, um, I, I guess I think it, it makes sense, right, just to kind of think about where where Bob was um, going into Blood on the Tracks. Because the, the interesting thing is, right, like this... So the album, like like we've talked about, was initially recorded in New York in September 1974, um, and then was, uh, you know, a lot of those sessions were scrapped and re-recorded in January 75 in Minneapolis, and then the album came out, I think, a couple weeks, maybe a month or something after that. But so it's interesting, you know, we, we've talked about the last couple episodes of this show, like, you know, Bob... We're, we're we're into this like Bob is back phase of his career, right? Which kicked off with Before the Flood, right? Um, in early '74, um, and then Planet Waves followed on shortly thereafter. And so, Blood on the Tracks, like I, I guess I didn't really think about it or, or you know realize it quite as much without looking, sitting down, and looking at the timeline, um, like I did before this. But Before the Flood was happening like January, February of '74. Planet Waves comes out a few months after that, like May, June, 74, something like that. And then like three months after that, he's back in the studio cutting blood on the tracks. Right. So it, it's like a, it like from a, from a just like quantity and quality of output standpoint, like this is, this is a, a bolt of lightning, like Bob is back, like he was in 65, where he's cranking out, uh, bringing it all back home, and Highway 61, and Blonde on Blonde in the span of 16 months yeah. or something like that. Although that that was more like Bob is born, like rock rock Bob birth. Right. This album is, um, I I think off the bat, I can say is like, it's no contest if you're comparing it to Planet Waves. Just in terms of emotional content, this is a different type of thing altogether. There's every indication of, from what I've read and I've read a lot uh, lately that this was a record that Dylan, in a sort of unusual way, relative to the rest of his career, like knew what he wanted to do with. Um, he he was determined to get this down while the emotion was there, and he had a real confidence in the material. And um, that's how it went, at least for the the New York sessions. The that it really was a whirlwind. Yeah, it's almost like uh, almost like an anti-studio album or, or something. Like there's there's so little artifice or really even like kind of concern given to the songs um, in terms of like the instrumentation and the the production and stuff. There there wasn't a producer for the record, right? Um, and um, and the players on the album, you know, Planet Waves had been you know Bob and the band, obviously. This was, as as far as I could tell, uh, you know, based on what I read, um, uh, it, it, it was just Bob in a studio, you know, cutting tracks himself, and he just dialed up like whoever he could get in there uh, to to come down to Columbia Records and um, and hop into the studio with him and and play along. And he was doing this weird kind of like tuning arrangement on all the songs was, that was really hard for a lot it of. It was the, all in some kind of 
open D uh, tuning that was very yeah. confusing for many people. Yeah, I, it, there's a lot of times uh, during the recording of this we should just specify and make clear because it's a little confusing. This is the first recordings for this record. They were done in New York. But the record you hear if you go to the store um, and buy Blood on the Tracks, you say, one Blood on the Tracks, please, is not the one that we're really talking about right now it's something that was recorded completely later some of it some of it um, most of it half 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 it's, of it's it half and half yeah half of half of the songs are are new york cuts and then half of them are um are um minneapolis cuts that came out um in or that came out of the, the 19 january 75 sessions um including the two Really, you know, kind of the two showstopper headline songs from the record, uh, Idiot Wind and Tangled Up in Blue. Obviously, those are both re-recordings. Right. I think an interesting place to start off is by noting that uh, the initial version, the New York Sessions, was it's the same songs, um, same sequencing and everything. Apparently, the sequencing didn't even shuffle around much. The sequencing of the record, the tracks in order, were basically something that happened organically as far as I can tell in these instances where Dylan would play the whole thing in person to some friends kind of just like for feedback and um, in a safe space to show what he'd been working on. And uh, in, in those instances, that's where the track list sort of fell into place and it didn't change um, even in the re-recording of the record. Um, that pretty much stayed the same hmm. with the exception of the final track, I believe, which at one point was to be the unincluded number up to me, up to me. Yeah. Which um, saw, saw light of day on the bootleg series released from a couple of years ago. Right. Which is just kind of, is a sort of reprise of the, uh, of the opener tangled up in blue, but, um, he ended up closing the record with the more upbeat, uh, Buckets of rain, right? Yes. So one one amazing fact that I learned while doing some reading and research was that among the people that he played the record for when he was just trying to shop it around for friends and feedback was uh, he played this record for Shel Silverstein on his houseboat. <laughs> On on Shel Silverstein's houseboat. On Shel Silverstein, beloved poet and illustrator, his houseboat. He did the same thing for Graham Nash and David Crosby at the St. Paul Hilton. Mm. They all loved it or really liked it, so that must have been encouraging to some of his fellow musicians um, who were familiar with the material and uh, heard the initial pressing. Some musicians like. Joni Mitchell and uh, Robbie Robertson, they really thought this was the superior record overall, and they were they kind of felt it was a cop out to uh, change it in the way that it was ultimately changed. They felt the original New York version was superior. That's right. The initial original test pressing is like the holy grail to many uh, Dylan collectors. If you can get one of those. Right, like an actual hard copy of the original cut. Yeah, which actually it includes the original cover and everything, but it's a totally it's the early it's the early version of the record that right. never was released. 
Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's 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 something to be said for that that argument, and 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 we can we can talk a little bit about that when we start talking about the songs. I imagine in the different versions of the songs. But so he ended up after the New York version was cut in September '74. It was supposed to come out just a couple months later, like November, December, something like that. Um, and then uh, and then right at the very last second, it didn't. Um, which uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure you can uh, expand on further for us, Evan. So after the whole thing was recorded, the entire uh, New York sessions, what they thought would be the record, uh, was finished and the test pressings were made. Dylan uh, ended up uh, making a visit to his brother and showing it to him, um, his brother David, who basically said, I don't hear a hit. And uh, it, (laughs) I guess, like, hilariously, that uh, crushed Bob's confidence in it, and he decided then there we're redoing this thing, and uh, then the Minneapolis sessions happened. Uh, everything was halted, and a slightly more forceful compared to the intimate, super depressed record that was initially cut. This other thing was born, which became the whole other half that we now know as Blood on the Tracks, right? And it was grafted on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think of it as sort of like the the fire and brimstone version of of these tracks, um, or you know, his fire and brimstone kind of take on on these songs. And and it makes sense that there are multiple takes, multiple versions or variations of these tracks because like they they are so personal and insightful and dense. Um, even though Bob himself, uh, you know, obviously the 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 gesture that he is uh, sort of refuses to acknowledge the personal nature of a lot of these tracks the fact that they are so that you know they speak so well to his internal struggles and, and landscape and and challenges that he was facing romantically with Sarah and then with um, this, um, you know, this other Columbia Records, uh... He was having an affair during this record. Yeah, exactly. I mean... He was writing with... And and he was having an affair, and, like, his wife... And and not only was he having an affair, but his wife... I don't know, I guess, I don't know if she was aware of it, but, like, they were... They were going in opposite directions. I I don't know. I mean, that... I thought we would get to this a little later, but if it's coming up now, I mean, the... The fact is... This record has long been considered by the public at large and, of course, by the media when it first came out to be a deeply personal record. And Bob Dylan has done a lot to sort of try to tamp that down, but also at many various points he's said little things that make it pretty clear that this is a deeply personal record there's just a, a about a dozen different little anecdotes of him saying this or that thing that imply its emotional intimacy and potency there's a interview where he, he he says something like regarding the album's popularity like i don't know why people enjoy that type of how they can enjoy that type of pain so much it's like and then he says Oh, this is not about my marriage. It's about. It's not autobiographical at all. It's based on Anton Chekhov's short stories. But what we do know is that he was having a affair during this uh, record. And uh, even if your wife doesn't know about that, even if you're not fighting with your wife, 
that's put, that's going to put you in a certain frame of mind right. about what what the hell is going on in my in my world and in in romance. If you're if someone like Bob, it's going to lead to writing potentially like we have here about romance in a really big picture way and about the tragedy of of loving someone and the risks of loving anyone. Um, and I think that's really what is at the heart of this record more than anything specifically about his marriage or this affair or whatever. I think that this record is overall about the risk that you take when you have strong feelings for another person and that nobody is safe. Yeah. There's a real, there's a real, universality i think to the songs and the sentiments behind them on on the on the record um some of it clearly is autobiographical the parts that aren't necessarily autobiographical are clearly informed by the experiences that he's had um so whether or not he's actually talking about events that have happened to him uh events that have happened to him have informed whatever kind of moral or story that he's trying to relate but all of that said yeah i mean i i think that uh that the the album really kind of speaks to anyone who has been in love and had that um had things not not work out as it so often fails to do um i know speaking for myself you know this this album has gotten me through some challenging periods in my life and uh I, I would imagine that it has many many other people we were talking on um planet waves about like what do you do like how do you explain certain songs to your significant other um it was we were kind of joking about it but this record does definitely beg the question it brings to the fore like are these songs about bob dylan's personal life are they not like how do the people close to him react to it? Right. It, it's the most complex, one of the most complex records he has in, in that respect of being right on the border of personal versus uh, fictional. And at the end of, I mean, when you've absorbed this record and listened to it, I think a conclusion that I have anyway is that what, what makes this record really, one thing that makes it really strong is that there's, uh, sort of rubbing away at that uh, barrier between these great love stories in, in, in fiction and in song and in real life. And it, this record kind of, through various methods, um, like brings out the epicness, uh, to, for lack of a better word, of, of everybody's love story. Yeah, I think that's why it's it has taken its place in the in the canon. Uh, really, the only record that Bob recorded for the rest of his career that is that is generally and widely understood and and respected as equal to you know the the mid '60s run. You and I, as as more Bob scholars, uh, you know, might might put some other recordings up there as well. Um, less appreciated albums. You mean Bob Heads? We're, we're Bob yes, Heads. Yes, Bob Heads. Yeah, that's a better term. This album is the one that uh, that that has attained the same level of reputation that um, you know that the the older uh, fame making shit did for him. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's it's great to 
see this album coming on the heels of what came before it, right? Because like so, so much of what we've talked about so far is like Bob's withdrawal from the scene uh, and his descent into um, uh, just kind of marital bliss and, and happiness. And we see the music that comes out of that, right? We see Nashville Skyline. Uh, we see Self-Portrait. We see New Morning. I'm not forgetting New Morning this time. Um, yeah, we, <laughs> we completely <laughs> forgot about New Morning a couple episodes ago, which is fine. Uh, uh, minor record. That's the Jokerman stance. Yes. Save the man in me and uh, throw everything else in I'll the, keep Day of the Locust. Uh, but, um, but yeah, like the, the albums that Bob is putting out in his marital bliss withdrawal from the scene kind of, uh, you know, happy family man um, time of his life are... They're interesting records, and I love a lot of them, and and parts of all of them, but they're well, uh, they're not they're, they're that not blood- interesting. Not- That's the thing; they're not super well, interesting records. In, in exactly, yeah, we see we see what's what he's capable of <laughs> as soon as he's like shocked back into this, like you know, this this um, this this trauma, of, really of, uh, being yeah, angst and and heartbreak and and problems and shit. Like as soon as that sort of element re-enters his life, blood on the tracks is what comes out. Nashville Skyline and uh, New Morning, ding, 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 and so on, those are records that are interesting in the context of Bob Dylan's career, but uh, because they're a departure, this is like picking up where you thought Bob Dylan might end up if he had just been... We discussed this before, like, if if Bob Dylan just after... Um, John Wesley Harding was like quiet and then comes back with this or after blonde on blonde really is like quiet and then comes out with this, that would really be more expected in, in a weird way because that's there. These are all like huge, uh, monumental statements uh, on their own. Um, that's like more the trajectory that people would expect. But, um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, at least, with this this record, I think is a testament to what a lot of people uh, I think is kind of like a commonly understood thing now, um, like folk wisdom that like when you're happy, uh, there's less potential for artistic uh, daring. Right. And, yeah, you got to be miserable to make great art. You know that there's much to be said. Like, there's a lot of people really get mad and say, like, no, that's not true. Like, never tell people that you you have to be sad to make great art. Um, I, obviously, you don't have to be sad to make great art, but I believe it's absolutely true that certain traumas, uh, survivable traumas, they do. Um, create conditions where sometimes the only way that you feel like you can get through it is to make something. And the product of that ends up more often than not being just by the nature of the intensity of those emotions. It's going to be a heavier thing. It's going to be something bigger um, because those are big emotions. Um, And in this case, it seems like, whether it was just uh, Dylan being very moved by reading Chekhov short stories, which you could uh, maybe. He's such a liar. I mean, yeah. But like, ultimately, it doesn't matter what caused these emotions. They're clearly there. and um, Right. And this is the result. Yeah. And we haven't even started talking <laughs> about a song. So 
Well, I realize I didn't really answer your question earlier um, before we get fully into it about what I think, just going into it about the the two versions. I do think that the New York version, yeah, it seems like it does feel more raw in a way that's actually kind of uh, counterintuitive because the the cuts that were replaced with the Minneapolis versions, they do sound sharper more together a little bit more uh focused and forceful right but they don't have that true uh bitter tang of being genuinely depressed it's it requires a little depth of listening i think to really get everything those those new york cuts can give it's a subtle thing to listen for but it's definitely there it's a real low center of gravity uh right type of emotion that is is uh <laughs> animating those songs it's not a joke to somebody who is really going through a breakup or something to hear that and to feel like uh this man is actually uh transmitting like some feelings you wouldn't want to discuss with your family type of thing <laughs> Yeah, I I think that uh, I think that's a good point. Like it, what what version of of these tracks you prefer, um, it sort of says something about you. It, it reveals what you're looking for in the music. And it re- it reveals how lucky you are in terms of what you've had to like, deal with, perhaps deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like my my dad. I think I was as I've told you, my dad is a huge uh, Dylan head. Um, and Blood on the Tracks was the, the record that, that made him fall in love. Like it came out in 75, he was 15. This is when he, this is when Dylan hit for him. So this is, you know, I think probably his favorite Dylan record uh, of all time. And, you know, he knows just as much about him as, as you and I do. And, uh, and he has always preferred the album cuts, you know, the, 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 the ripping, roaring, tangled up in blue and the mean and spitting mad idiot wind cut, because that's what he's, that's what what he's looking for out of he's he's looking for like a vindictive bob someone who is is pissed and angry and feels like he's been wronged and wants to like uh you know take it out on someone um and i get that but for me that's you know my father my father and i are different different uh different temperaments emotionally um and so the um you know the sad bastard mopey kind of versions of these songs um for me you know end up end up connecting a lot more for that for that reason i think yeah i I, they're newer to me and so i'm just getting hip to them and if they had come if i had discovered them at a certain earlier point uh perhaps in my life when i was feeling worse i would have (laughs) maybe totally flipped on that but i i'm gradually now actually feeling what what more on that side um that that the new york ones are a bit more nuanced and a bit rougher in a way that to me now is more compelling i although i i always loved the idiot wind and i still do love that idiot wind that's so blown out and like he's he's bearing it all in this really like stormy tirade. I think it works really well on the record. Perhaps 
I I wouldn't even mind if if Dylan had pulled a um, Planet Waves and just put two versions of the same song back to back on that one because the other version of Idiot Wind from the New York sessions has such a a deeper resonance and it feels so much more like like how being sad actually feels where whereas the I I don't know how many times in my life I've actually sustained anger for what seven straight minutes like like on that record yeah, exactly. <laughs> on on the other version I, I would wait I would wear myself out after that much. I've been Just sad for pissed. days in a row weeks months but uh yeah being angry is maybe uh a little harder to to relate to for fucking a whole for a whole Dylan epic song. Yeah, basically a uh, a hundred uh, a hundred tweet thread about your uh, you know bitch wife breaking up with you and about how you are an idiot too. God, what a great song. Uh, oh. At the very end, he realizes he's an idiot, but it takes him that whole seven minutes before he acknowledged that we are idiots. Up until then, it's just you're an idiot, babe. And we we were talking about this in the last episode, actually, about this. Uh, I, I compared him to Woody Allen, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> you, yeah, maybe not the best comparison, but not not all Jews look alike. <laughs> <laughs> not all Jews create the same thematic arcs. Evan, but um, that song is like the culmination of the of this thing that does pop up and has matured at this point on this record of and who is to blame uh, of these love songs, these uh, love uh, anti love songs where the question is up in the air about what really happened between these two people. And um, for the love of God, we must start talking about the songs. That's, that's a good point. Side one, track one, Tangled Up in Blue. This song is, uh, it's different than what we have in the early Dylan records, but it's more similar to mid 60s Dylan than anything that we've talked about so far in this podcast in my opinion it's not the same it's not like he's doing that uh verbal uh some would say diarrhea of uh poetic connections of this and this and this um like we have in a great song like visions of Johanna he it's the same amount of words perhaps but they're more prosaic they're less hallucinatory it's more about the material plane it feels like it's more about the real world and focusing more on an actual relationship between people this song deals with working odd jobs traveling moving through the world and having these encounters with somebody who you can't forget. Yeah. I, this is, this I think is like, 
I mean, it's the first song on the record, right? So this is the first thing that you're hearing when you encounter um, a lot on the tracks. But it, like, right off the bat, I think it it signals like a new kind of a new kind of like fusion. Dylan, several different versions of Bob from the past uh, combined in a new way that that we hadn't seen them before. So, so you're right. Like it, it is, it is a very dense kind of song, um, and it's it's a very detailed and um, long and winding kind of story that he's telling with this song. But at the same time, it's not. Yeah, it's it's not being told in this very fanciful kind of language like uh, like we hear on Desolation Row or 115th Dream or something like that. It's it's just a very straightforward, like simple, easy to parse um, song about you know uh, a guy and, and a girl. We're getting kind of this best of of both worlds in that sense, where like the early 70s Bob, when he's adopted this very simple kind of like Americana. Uh, rootsish kind of vibe. He's got that language here, but at the same time, he's using that that language to tell the same kind of dense, effective, affective, a f f e c t i v e, emotionally uh, impactful kind of story uh, that we might have gotten from earlier, you know, the earlier kind of sixties material. As we talked about on the uh, episode about rough and rowdy ways, I talked about two different kinds of Dylan records that happen, where there's records that are like diegetic music and there's records that are non-diegetic music (laughs) there's there's dylan records that that are attempts to embody a style and perform as a a kind of what if dylan was a country singer and perform these songs where he he's enjoying himself imagining himself kind of as a different type of artist and then he goes for that and releases the record. And it's something that you can enjoy on on the level of any other kind of music. And then this record, very subtly, the change happens where this record is too specific to be enjoyed like it's just another album of songs. You can't play these at a party and expect people to dance. It, it's it's there are things in it, even though it's not as um, verbose, it's not as kaleidoscopic. Whatever other adjectives are usually thrown out there to talk about early Dylan, it's it's less like that than you would expect. But it is a significant evolution in that it's Dylan coming back to this wide screen, full on storytelling poetic mode just with a more grown-up less fanciful approach i think yeah he's less inclined to talk about jewels and binoculars hanging from the head of the mule and he's more inclined to talk about like how somebody looked at him one night but it's still that scale of those bigger songs uh for lack of a better term no yeah you're exactly right one thing interesting just on a trivia note the the new york cut told from the third person the minneapolis cut told from the first person the initial version of the song uh it's uh early one morning the sun was shining he was laying in bed wondering if she changed it all if her hair was still red mm. and then the actual album cut he is he's telling it from as if he himself is the narrator of the song he's taken on the eye 
So uh, I don't I don't know what that says necessarily. Besides, perhaps these songs are not in fact based off of Chekhov short short stories, or not entirely based off of Chekhov short stories. But che- Chekhov is I mean, if if you've read any Chekhov, then you know that those stories are all about failing marriages and uh, like people who are miserable with each other, yearning for another better romantic situation whatever so it's it's really kind of funny that it, what other artists could you imagine just saying casually i was inspired by a chekhov and people think that oh no but surely you were doing something better than chekhov like yeah it's funny to think of like harry nilsson's chekhov inspired record no. Or Todd Rundgren's Chekhov record. Yeah, I bet that exists, and I bet it sucks. <laughs> um, I mean, no no, no ill will toward, toward Todd. Or, obviously, toward, toward uh, Harry. I love Harry Nelson. Harry. Harry's great, yeah. Uh, one other note, uh, just something that I've always loved in Tangled Up and Blue. I'm sure everyone loves it. Uh, but uh, a direct through line to what we got on... Um, on uh, Rough and Rowdy Ways, uh, we got a dick joke in this song. Um, Do we? Yeah. When uh, when he when he finally encounters um, when he when he encounters again encounters her again. In I the do admit, place, I, felt, right? I felt a little uneasy as she bent time when to she bent down tie to the tie the laces of my shoe. shoe, tangled up in blue. Like, uh, I love that. So, like, you know, it, 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 it's trite to even say that I love that. Everyone knows that's a great line and. Um, has heard it a thousand times, but just, uh, I, you know, what can you say? He's the king. It's a great line. I wonder if Brian Eno used that as inspiration for I'll come running to suck your dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next song, number two. Simple Twist of Fate. And interestingly enough, the, the point of view changes to third person. So... Even yes. though the last track he was toying at one point initially with having it be third, now this track he's going, I will do it third. This was one of the first Bob Dylan songs I ever heard, and I heard it uh, at a summer camp. I was uh, like probably 12 or 13, and on one day of going to a Jewish summer camp, there's a couple day excursion where the whole camp walks uh, does this hike and goes into the these mountains and stays actually like in sleeping bags and stuff like under the stars away from the the main camp and when they do the the fire that night um the this guy would he he shot a bow and arrow a flaming bow and arrow into the fire pit and then started the fire and then some other uh, Jew-froed guy sat down and and played songs, and this was one of the songs he played, and my, like, 12-year-old, 13-year-old self was moved deeply by by this song. And um, (laughs) I felt, this is a a great song, and I, I still feel that way. I, uh, I I feel the same way. This this is one of those ones that's just got like some, like you can tell just from the first time you hear the first couple seconds, like there's some some sort of magic to it. 
Um, yeah. Just the way that, that guitar strum, like whenever you hear it for the first time, whether you're 12 or 13 in Jew camp or, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I guess how old was I when I heard that? It was probably a couple years after that, I don't know, 15, 16, something like that. And just kind of picking through the first couple most important Bob records. Um, it's one that just sticks with you. Yeah. Like throughout time, even, even though we've heard it a thousand, hundred thousand times at this point, like I, I, I don't get tired of no. it. Like it, it always, it always hits me square in the heart. There's something about that descending m- melody that is uh, just like catnip to my soul uh, that yeah. I just can't resist it. Um, and funny enough, I have that a theory which I, I mentioned to you earlier about this song, which may or may not be true, but there, there's a track, a track. There's a classical music piece, which I believe is the uh, origin in some o- weird way of this song. That would be Cacciatorian Spartacus Suite Number Two, Adagio of Spartacus and Phrygia, I believe. which has the same just sort of descending uh, melody. And then later on, just out of nowhere, it occurred to me that this Scott Walker song from his album uh, Till the Band Comes In, called It's Over, uh, quotes that piece of music, and that album is from 1970. And this is actually the second time we've mentioned Till the Band Comes In, which I think is an underrated record. But... Um, that that Scott Walker song, It's Over, is very much thematically akin to Simple Twist of Fate. What love we share would always be There'd be no coming day To shine on morning lights Make us When you walk away from me There is no place to put my hand Except to shade my eyes Against the sun that rises o'er the land I watch you walk away somehow I have to let you go Cause it's over And I have to wonder just how I feel, I think you might return and yet there are so many times then forget false prophet. One of these instances of like accidentally quoting something or absorbing something. That's my harebrained theory. I definitely I hear it. These are all this is all new 
information to me, but it is compelling evidence. I encourage you all to give these songs a listen. But don't you know? Don't don't let Phoebe Bridgers uh, know because she'll cancel um, Scott Walker and she'll cancel um, Bob for stealing from right. Scott Walker and. Uh, well, for, first she'll have to cancel Scott, and then she'll have to cancel Bob. Right, yeah, because Scott would have also stolen it from the classical composer. Right. It's just listen to Simple Twist of Fate. It's the best. It, I don't have it really. We don't have anything to say about it. Baseline kills it. It's perfect. He he's he changes up the lyrics to this one when he, he performs it from time to time, even not that many years hence uh, of its official release like this is the best one in my opinion yeah yeah he he likes to change up a lot of the lyrics from the blood on the track songs because they're they are so like story story like um that he can just write whole new verses basically and plug them in and they they work just as well um, you know, in terms of rhyme scheme and stuff, um, as the, the original cuts, but yeah, I mean the, the LP cut of the song, immaculate, perfect, you know, it, uh, it really peak peak kind of Bob. Um, and, and, uh, the first New York track on the record, uh, we're only two tracks in, but, uh, you know, this is, this is a clear illustration of the original kind of, uh, vibe that he was going for, um, before he went to Minneapolis and recut some of these tracks, so I'm glad. I'm glad that the New York version of this made it through to the the you know official canonical version of Blood on the Tracks. And when he says "sat together in the park," which park do you imagine? Mm, Washington Square, probably. Me too. That's actually right? also the park I imagine. Yeah, and or maybe maybe Tompkins. I don't imagine Tompkins. No, because I don't imagine like somebody skating by during this song. I guess that's. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many skaters were hanging out there back in um, night. Well, interestingly, actually, before we jump on to the next one, uh, our friends at old Wikipedia dot com. Um, God, people us... get such uh, so upset when we talk about Wikipedia. I can pretend like this information is coming from somewhere more arcane, and then I'll sound smarter. Please, for the for for our own sake, just say that it's from something different. From ex- um, from expensive books, yes, from uh, leather bound tomes uh, at the library. Apparently, the working title of Simple Twist of Fate was Fourth Street Affair. And yo, yo. Mm-hmm. and Dylan and uh, and his former partner, about whom positively Fourth Street had been written, lived on Fourth Street, uh, obviously. So. That makes you think that, uh, you know, this might not have been a strictly autobiographical song in terms of his relationship with Sarah, but it certainly seems like it probably was related to some sort of relationship that he had, um, you know, some sort of relationship that he had, um, you know, a few years earlier. Um, In 1978, Bob Dylan had an interview where he literally said the song Sarah from desire is not necessarily about Sarah. <laughs> not so, necessarily yeah, about Sarah. He's a liar. <laughs> with that, we can go to the next track, number three, and take it with a big old grain of salt. You're a big girl now. You're a big grain of salt. <laughs> I can't help but think of it, it as um, 
sort of a sequel to Just Like a Woman. I was going to say the same thing. I, yeah, exactly. An important, actually, fact that we haven't touched upon yet is that this record was recorded at what was formerly Columbia Studio A, which is where Dylan recorded his first six albums. And this was actually his return to that studio space. And so that's really where he felt most at home to do this, his most considered and um, intentional feeling record since uh, Blonde on Blonde, many would say. I think that does add some credence to the, the the idea that some of these are related to to those older songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this album is really you know it's it's his it's his rebirth. Um, you know, in in more ways than one. It's like revisiting where you grew up, and you're older. You're a big girl now. Is like, just like a woman, maybe several years later. After they were married, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the same kind of vibe, the same kind of sentiment, uh, but but related by someone obviously with with a few more years uh, under his belt. You know, it's a more um, not that just like a woman is is a particularly venomous song, uh, at least not compared to yeah, you know, positively Fourth Street or or Rolling Stone um, or something like that. Um, but it is, you know, there there is, you know, a, sort of a, a, an edge to it. Um, and, and You're a Big Girl Now um, has that same kind of edge, but at the same time, it's not it's not quite as sharp. It, it's a little more um, uh, double double edged, I would say, you know, um, uh, cutting cutting not only towards her, you, the big girl, um, but towards Bob himself as well. We've now tick-tocked back towards the Minneapolis versions on the record. Um, Got to say, big fan of the New York cut of this one, which has got this uh, very ghostly kind of organ flourish on it that uh, that is totally lacking from the finished product, um, but but adds quite a bit to it. There's also a slide guitar on the New York cut of this version, which I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dive back into the Nashville skyline. Uh, love here, but um, uh, I'm sure our, our our large audience is well aware of my appreciation for the country touchstones. Uh, absolutely, they know that you're a country boy through and through. Time is jet plane; it moves too fast. Oh, but what a shame if all we've shared can't last. My favorite line from this song is, um, "I can change. I swear. Just see what you can do." That's that's a good one too. It's got that sort of resigned quality of recognizing that nothing could have gone differently and sort of having to deal with with what's in front of you, deal with the distance that's that's been created by a relationship falling apart. And I think this actually has a sort of generous, it leans into a sort of generous sadness of acceptance of what's what's happened. Yeah. Yeah, he's not pointing the finger on this song the same way that he is on some earlier tracks. You could also say, oh, this is so demeaning. He's calling her, you know, you're a big girl now, which is is something that could be said with a real cruelty to it, uh, a real um, edge 
like, oh, you're, you're, you're better than me now, huh? Like a real sad sack. It's, it's a song that's not like you mentioned, you know, you're a big girl could be perceived as some sort of like cutting remark and, and it certainly can, but I think the way that it's being used in, in this track is not, I think it's like him reminding himself that, that you, or, you know, that his, his, uh, the, the, the object of his affections, uh, is in fact a big girl. It's an adult. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a real person who's maybe wiser than him, better than him. Exactly. He's, he's willing to, and I think this is really kind of the, one of the big kind of like breakthroughs that we get on a lot on the tracks, like for seemingly the first time in his career, he's willing to accept some fault of his own. Like he, he, he's, he has been great and always is great at, uh, up until this point, you know, casting, casting aspersions on those around him. And, you know, um, uh, some of the, the very best tracks are built on that kind of idea. Baby Blue, Rolling Stone, Just Like a Woman, whatever, uh, Fourth Street. And then there are other tracks, uh, you know, uh, that we move on to a little bit later that are more based on storytelling and things like that. You know, the John Wesley Harding stuff. Um, and there's the happy, lovey-dovey, marital bliss kind of stuff that, that we get into in the years following. But we really have never seen Bob, like, kind of interrogate his own responsibility in, uh, for, you know, his own unhappiness or, or things that have gone wrong in his life. I, I hesitate to call it personal growth, but artistic growth in that he's willing to, um, like I said, he's willing to accept responsibility himself and, and look, uh, look inward at his own flaws instead of only the flaws at all of those around him. I, I think you could say pretty confidently it is artistic growth i believe that art that has a a more panoramic a more in-depth more detailed view of the nuances of every side of, of of a situation presented is going to be a richer work of art and um i think that if you want to think of this record as a leap in dylan's songwriting maturity it's that it's that you you see him dwell more on both sides of everything about this uh, relationship. Every relationship, whether it's one or several, that appear on this record. And even to go back to the last song on Simple Twist of Fate, you have this device of going back and forth between the two characters and they're, what they're each doing. It's not a first-person diatribe anymore. We segue seamlessly into... Idiot Wind, a song that is uh, a little, a little more interested in, in like, like we said earlier, uh, pointing fingers, perhaps. Really, the centerpiece of this album. Yes. As far as I can tell, it's about living as a, as like somebody who's super famous and also having an emotional, romantic crisis at the same time, and this song is is about that in a way that's so intense and that's super rare. I don't know how many other people have written songs where it feels anyway, this um, candid, this raw regarding like the unique loneliness and pain of being like a living icon and having these problems with somebody you care about 
Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe Kanye West is 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 the only <laughs> other person who's really been like working on that particular patch of musical territory. It's not that common that you see this. That's that's my sort of feeling about it. Right. Runaway is Kanye's uh, idiot wind or something. Maybe hold my liquor. I I don't know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I knew this song, and I grew to love this song as being the version on the the official record, which is really angry, forceful, uh, and aggressive, and and uh, bitter. Um, and the the New York version is quieter, more uh, subtle, but possibly more intense yeah i i think that the the different takes or the different cuts emphasize different parts of the song um like just looking at the words on the page right like the uh, from the very beginning until almost the very end it's uh you're an idiot babe uh it's a wonder that you know how to breathe it's pointing fingers like 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 we've said uh, but then at the very end, the, the very, very last stanza, it resolves, and, and he's decided that we, in fact, are idiots, babe. It's a wonder that we can even feed ourselves. Um, so he's, he's, he's now, again, kind of taking this, this same responsibility that he, that he took on on um, You're a Big Girl Now. And so, so those lyrics are in there in both versions of the song. In the New York version, the, you know, the quiet uh, acoustic guitar and electric bass version, um, and the full band Minneapolis version. But the I think the different approaches emphasize different parts of the song. If, if we're looking at the album cut, the canonical album version, the fire and brimstone version, this is much more about you, like you're an idiot, babe. And we get to this end, and it, it resolves itself with with the we line. Um, but it you know that, that, that's kind of an afterthought almost um, to me at least on, on that cut. Versus the New York version is is much more about that that final resolution to me. Where he is, he is this kind of, um, like you said, bitter and um, tired and just kind of loathsome kind of character throughout this this entire lyric. And then at the very end, then he finally kind of acknowledges like the reality of what what's behind all of this venom and um, and meanness that's been animating the song up until now. And it's a dislike, it's a distaste for his own actions at the end of it all. And so from like a dramatic arc kind of standpoint, three-act structure or whatever, if we want to think about it like a movie, uh, I think it makes more sense to me uh, as, the, as the New York version um, in terms of what he's trying to put across with this song. But again, that vibe, that spirit just, uh, just works for me in general more based on you know, the kind of cuck uh, beta boy that I am. I, I really love the, uh, the angry version, and I respect the more resigned super depressed version um what's really remarkable about this song um and and a weird fact about this whole record was apparently bob dylan was taking this painting class with this painting teacher whose name escapes me right now norman yeah i saw this norman uh something jewish i think norman jewish and um (laughs) they uh and, and apparently according to Bob in, in this interview later, he said that after he took this class, which made him totally rethink time and space, uh, he, his wife could no longer understand him or what he was talking about. Um, and, uh, that's a whole other can of worms, but, um, 
what you see in this song is uh, it's like Bob is channeling all of the hallucinatory kaleidoscope, whatever you, you want to call it, um, energy of, say, 65, 66 that he's he's bringing back in some other form to this record. He's he's channeling that into this temporal sort of mode where it flits back and forth between time and space and the physical world in this way that is really, I think, uh, amazing. Clearly is sort of the centerpiece of, of the record. Um, you know, the last, the last or not last second, the last song on the first, on the first side. Um, but like you said, there, there isn't anything else like it on, on the album. It, it does pair with, uh, Jack of Hearts on the second side, which is the other, you know, dense, extremely long kind of song on this record. But that is a totally different kind of like, you know, like story, storybook, like Grimm's fairy tale fable kind of thing. Right. Which, um, which actually has more, I feel in common with the mode that he is, uh, more mired in on, um, John Wesley Harding. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, but one, just one last point, I think that's interesting for my own trivia sake, uh, before we wrap up idiot wind, he's only played the song 55 times live ever. Um, and not since 1992, which I, I'm going to have to say is a point in favor of the people who want to deem this record, a, uh, very personal, uh, autobiographical, uh, work. Um, right. Like the song is too, is too much for him to play live. So he, he can't. Yeah. Like how death grips will never play on GP live. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that song, but, um, that's their idiot wind. I'm familiar with some death grips records, but, uh, money store and, uh, deep web and bottomless pit are really the ones. Uh, well, you gotta listen to the powers that be because any, and for that matter, you have to listen to, um, government plates, which, which opens with a Bob Dylan title. Does it? Yeah, the first track on Government Plates is uh, You Think He Loves You For Your Money, But I Know What He Really Loves You For. It's your brand new leopard skin pillbox hat. Oh, shit. Okay. And this song, while it's been played live, it's scant. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like he played it for the first time in April 76. So that would have been the second leg of the uh, Rolling Thunder tour. And they divorced in 77. Uh, did they? Yeah, Bob and Sarah? That's right. Okay, yeah. So, oh, wow. Okay, so I'm looking at, uh, you know, you can see exactly which specific set list the song was in. So he played it, like, every night during the second win, the second leg of the Rolling Thunder tour, um, April 76 into May, and then let it sit until uh, April 1992, uh, and then played it every night in a row for, looks like, about two months and then played it a couple more times in the summer of 1992, and then never again. So he's really gone through two two spans of time in his entire career uh, of playing this song live, and besides that, has never has never touched it. And this song um, has some great lyrics, which I feel like we should touch on, which uh, one of my favorites is, uh, what's good is bad, what's bad is good. You find out when you reach the top, you're at the bottom. Uh, that's a great one. Real MC Escher kind of uh, kind of vibe. Yeah, M- MC Dylan. 
MC Ride. <laughs> right, yeah. And uh, then we have one more track, You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go, which, I mean, this album, it's very taxing even just to talk about because you have to flip back and forth between what's autobiographical, what's not. But by all accounts, You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go is actually about uh, this woman who he was having an affair with. Ellen, I think, something? Ellen Bernstein. Yeah, and <laughs> Another uh, uh, Ellen and just uh, stereotypically Jewish last name. Ellen Jewess. And uh, <laughs> yeah. she uh, she was the A&R person for Columbia. This is Bob Dylan's return uh, after a, a brief uh, parting of ways to do a couple records on Asylum. And uh, he's back home at Columbia. And um, it, a little too back at home, perhaps, because he got a little cozy with uh, Ellen from A&R. Happens to the best of them, you know. So this song, You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go, is a total 180 turn. I always thought of the uh, of this song as like sort of a... I mean, before I became aware of the potential autobiographical connotations, I always kind of thought of this song as like the like flashback kind of following idiot wind like like we've just gotten through this like wrenching taxing draining uh, diatribe uh, about you know the this this failed relationship and now just before this side ends just before we move on to the second half of the record we're going to take it just a quick like the song's like 3 minutes 3 and a half minutes it's very short and sweet and simple and it's like got a nice little you know mel- melody to it um i always thought of it as, as like a flashback to what what the good days were like, um, you know, before things descended into the reality of of Idiot Wind. Um, but clearly, <laughs> I think, uh, based on biographical details and stuff, Ellen uh, Bernstein, yeah, uh, was born in San Francisco, I think, and then lived in Honolulu and right. Ashtabula. Yeah, the, um, the geographical references actually hold some water. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, there's a lot of interesting things that uh, Ellen has to say about about the record. She, by all accounts, was uh, very instrumental in getting this record out of Dylan, kind of spurring him on creatively and encouraging this exploration, this uh, direction he was going in during the New York sessions. Here's a quote from her. He knew these songs. He knew his vision for these songs which was very pure and very unadorned. And you don't need a producer if your vision is that personal on something. I think he had a lot of belief in the integrity of the material. She also said, there were certain ones where you can hear the sound of his fingernails on the guitar. That didn't matter to him. None of that stuff was important to him. What was important was the overall emotional weight of the song. So she was really close with him. I mean, how else do you say something like that about uh, the making of this record if you weren't like right, right there with him right. and sure yeah a and r person uh, ostensibly close to the artist during the making of a record but uh how close pretty close as far as we can tell and uh yeah th- so if if you do read this song as a continuation of the story rather than a flashback it's like a breath of fresh air for Dylan uh, against the 
the pressure and anxiety of Idiot Wind, where he has lines like, the other day, you you had to ask me where it was at. I couldn't believe after all these years, you didn't know me any better than that. Sweet lady. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look, that sounds, after all these years, you didn't know me any better than that. I mean, to me, that feels like he's talking about uh, the the pressures of of celebrity status upon a marriage, but that's just my humble take on it, uh, as far as I can glean. Um, and so, you're going to make me lonesome when you go is sort of this innocent for a man cheating on his wife type of song. <laughs> it does. It does have a big, um, yeah, big affair kind of energy to it. Um, do also really appreciate the line here. First stanza, uh, first stanza, when, when something's not right, it's wrong. Uh, it's very, you know, uh, that is, that is some very deep insight from Bob. Well, it's great that this, this record has this special advantage of like Bob having gone through all of those very, um, intentionally simple records like, uh, Nashville skyline and, uh, at, at some in some sense uh new morning and and so on but he puts those simple lines in the context of an emotional state that that gives them extra heft um and that's that's a good example of one of one of those moments where it's really simple lyric but easy to read into right yeah this is the first glimpse of any sort of emotionally satisfied Bob, I think that we get on this record. And it's one of just a few of those, um, throughout, like we've, th- this, this first side of the album, Tangled Up in Blue, Simple Twist of Fate, You're a Big Girl Now, Idiot Wind, like those are, that is a, that's a, that's a, 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 a dense, uh, powerful, hard to get through, heart wrenching kind of, uh, back to back to back to back, uh, set of songs. And uh, and so I, I think it makes sense in terms of like sequencing. We were talking about that earlier to wrap this first side up with just a, a little glimpse of some degree of like satisfaction or happiness, uh, because thus far uh, Bob has not appeared to be a very very happy guy on this album. Um, not not uh, you know uh, to our benefit, I would say. Like we've talked about, it. Um, I think that he's energized and more vital than he had been for quite a while but the happy bob of i want you or uh, a lot from national sky on their self-portrait uh has disappeared completely at this point so this is this is kind of a flashback to that um that former state of mind that he might want to get to uh but but has has eluded him at this point well that was side a of blood on the tracks blood on the songs and uh, next time, we're going to be doing Side B. Uh, this has been a long, heavy episode, but uh, we took a little break. So this is like us doing a double album, you know. Supersize Jokerman. Supersize Jokerman. Uh, join us next time, because if you've listened to this, you're clearly on board. Uh <laughs> Uh, bye bye.
Hallelujah. I am here. 